Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Alana. And I'm Nina. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Sachi. We, we are, are the Teresa Tran, and I am sitting in a Zoom call with Jessica, Sachi, Nina, and Ahana on this fine Wednesday evening, where outside currently the weather is full of rain and dirt. If this is your first time listening to us, thank you for joining us. Feminations is a podcast born out of a class project for Women's Studies 4900S, Integrating Theory and Practice, which is under the guidance of Dr. Josie Lineback at the University of Georgia. In this podcast, the five of us, Asian American women, discuss current events and our own lived experiences from an Asian-American intersectional, anti-racist, and anti-imperialist feminist perspective. In our last episode, Dosas and Dumplings, we talked about Netflix's show Ugly Delicious starring David Chang and the politics and culture of food and the Asian-American community's relationship with food. If you missed that one, you should definitely check it out on our website, anchor.fm slash feminasians, where you can also listen to our other episodes. Also, speaking of food, before this recording, I had to put out a disclaimer. I had to rush and quickly eat a rotisserie chicken leg with rice and soy sauce and like scarf it down. And now I feel really weird, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> was that TMI? Maybe. Anyways, today we have our usual people. Everybody say hi. Hello. <laughs> Today's episode is titled Let's Get Political and we'll be discussing domestic and global politics as it pertains to Asian Americans, including some of the most recent stuff around the 2020 primaries, the upcoming general election, the census, domestic and global politics in the time of COVID-19, the Asian American justice platform, Asian American activism, and the idea of our parents' politics as it permeates from our motherlands over to our generation and our negotiation with that. So that'll be fun, and I promise it will be. If y'all hang on tight. Okay. Woo. Woo. All right. So domestic politics at the time of COVID-19. First thing on the agenda is 2020 primaries. So what are y'all's? <laughs> yeah, basically, basically, my question was like, you know, what are you, what is your current, what are your current feelings about the 2020 primaries? Because right now it, it you know, with the 2020 primaries, it came down to Warren, Bernie, and Biden. With Biden now, currently as of April 29th, 2020, the only one left in the Democratic uh, primary race. So, um, yeah, what are y'all's feelings? Sad. Besides, sad? Yeah. Not good. Yeah. Where's Hillary Clinton when we need her? Am I right? <laughs> <I'm just> oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really disheartening to see, like, the playing field be one of the most diverse in like history and then just see it end up with like two white men super disheartening but. i agree i agree and not just like two white men like that's who we ended up going with too like we just have an old white man at this point who's like not even like representative of like the ideas that our generation wanted at all like he's like the last person we all wanted and somehow that's like 
who we ended up with. So that's like also super just dumb and disappointing. Yeah, I remember when like Bernie dropped out and it was very disheartening. And then, you know, now we're essentially stuck with a rapist. So the election is boiled down to which rapist will you vote for or not vote for, which is, um, you know, just like a summary of um, the U.S. politics in general. But, um, you know, speaking of like all the 2020 primaries and all three, you know, Warren, Bernie and Biden before uh, Biden is now the only nominee, how did each of these people, how did each of these nominees reach out to the Asian American community? Did they at all? Um, how did you, did any of you guys see them reaching out to the Asian, Asian American community um, and was it publicized in the media? I personally yeah, don't remember all. any yeah. outreach. Um, so as far as I can say, no. Um, I feel like Asian Americans are still a very invisible part of the electorate when it comes to, yeah, like electoral politics. But at the same time, I can also see the flip side of them doing a really bad job and then just being criticized for pandering and like really messing that up. So it's, it's, it takes a lot of effort and like a lot of staff and a lot of hard work and research to do outreach right. Mm-hmm. Agree. I know, like, Elizabeth Warren, um, earlier this year in 2020, she talked about, like, Asian American issues, and um, she, she was talking about, like, immigration and, like, cybersecurity, data equity, and, like, different things that could affect, like, low-income Asian Americans as well as like Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. Um, so, I mean, it was nice to see Elizabeth Warren address it for sure. Um, but again, I don't, I mean, it's just hard. I think honestly, like at this point, and this is gonna sound sad, but it's not something that I like have my, like I have to have my presidential candidate like address it because at this point I know it's not even gonna happen. Like I just not on my like platform anymore or ever has ever been on my platform. So I'm like, I just need other things to be taken care of. Like I know they're not gonna address or care about Asian Americans. I also feel like there's this expectation that Asian Americans kind of fit into like the white American segment of like policy and stuff. And I think that kind of goes back into like our previous discussion about model minority myths and how the model minority myth and how we've kind of been pitted against other minorities. Um, and the model minority myth being sort of that um, someone can someone can jump in if they have like a better definition. But I guess this kind of belief that Asian Americans are like naturally hardworking and naturally like good at the things that they do, and like they're just going to climb up the economic ladder by their own volition, about their own strength, um, which of course is a stereotype and a myth and not true. Um, so I think that the categorization of like Asian Americans with white folks is like definitely something that politicians play into Mm -hmm. for sure for sure yeah I agree with all of y'all in terms of like I have not seen these politicians all three of them really reach out that much to the Asian American community and part of that reason is because we are grouped and clumped into the white um, community Um, and in terms of their platforms you know like a lot of their policies and what their promises are, you know, impact the Asian American community, specifically like healthcare, immigration, 
education. And so what are your, some of your thoughts about their policies in terms of those um, topics as it pertains and affects the Asian American community? I've always thought it was super interesting to see how the Asian American community navigated with policies around immigration. Um, because of course, most of the Asian American community like they're immigrants. And so it's interesting to see like the very nuanced and diverse opinions um, about how the U.S. should handle quote unquote illegal immigration, whether immigration should be looked at as a positive or negative thing. Um, I know definitely like a common belief is like, well, we came here illegally and we worked hard. So that should be the same thing for all immigrants. So yeah, U.S. like definitely be strict on our borders. Um, or vice versa, like there's definitely a lot of things, but I think it's always been interesting how immigration has been, even when the immigrants that they're talking about aren't even Asian Americans, Im like immigration in general has like been an important policy to Asian Americans. And I just think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. For sure. I think about like this idea that because you had it harder when you immigrated that future immigrants should have the same sort of situation. And especially, I think about like the current immigration ban that we have in place um, because of COVID-19, quote unquote. Um, but really what it targets are Chinese and Asian immigrants. Um, and I never really understood that narrative that Asian American immigrants who live in this country right now, some of their views are like, you know, we did it legally and therefore we are the proper right immigrants. And obviously this stems from more of a systemic problem of like these immigration bans and how they vary depending on presidents and during different eras and how lax they are or how tight they are. Um, and, and we're talking about, you know, Trump's presidency, like it's been very strict. So I don't understand, like, like I don't know why, what do y'all think, like why is it that a lot of Asian immigrants in this country view immigration in this way? Um, I think it's sort of a way, and I'm not defending this view at all. This is something that like my parents hold as well. Um, and like from what I hear them say, I think it's a way for them to sort of protect themselves and like protect the way that they did it and sort of validate the fact that like they as immigrants are good people and they want to separate themselves from, you know, the quote unquote bad people, which like obviously we know is not like the way it is and the way it should be. Um, but I think that it's just some sort of retort that they have just to make sure that they protect their own, like, I guess, immigrant story and their own immigrant, like, stance. Um, and I wanted to kind of relate this to, like, the model minority myth that we were talking about earlier. I think this, like, thought process really falls into the model minority myth. And so just to kind of, like, define it along with how, what Sachi said about it, like this term model minority really came to be in the 60s, like in the United States in the 60s by like white politicians and writers talking about how specifically Chinese and Japanese Americans were working really hard to achieve success in this country. And so if they could do it, then why can't the black people and the Hispanic people who were currently at that time protesting for like more rights and protesting against, like for civil rights. So it really was used as a way to pit the minority groups against each other. And so I think because that has become such a huge part of like our society and the way we view different minority groups in the United States, 
we fall into that. And so it's like, yeah, like some parents, some immigrant, some Asian immigrant adults are going to think, well, you know, we worked really hard and these other minority groups didn't. And how do we differentiate ourselves from them? Well, we did it legally. We did it this way and they're not doing it that way. And let's, let's be, let's be safe. Let's be like assimilated. Let's get like respected from like the white people. We're not like them. And so it's kind of that divide. I think you made some really great points, both of you, Ahana and Sachi. And I think, Ahana, you specifically touched on anti-Blackness in the Asian community, as well as respectability politics, which both of those topics we'll talk about more later in the podcast. But yeah, I completely agree. And I think it really, in order to address these sort of issues, we, I mean, it's very easy to be like, oh, these happen on an individualistic level. We see these in our families, in our communities, but really it stems from systemic racism from the white establishment and that and how it affects all of our different uh, marginalized communities speaking of respectability politics and um immigration i think of one politician who has had a lot of views about that um andrew yang um who was one of the um asian political candidates in the 2020 primaries so um <clears throat> thoughts on Andrew comma Yang. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, For any uh, Asian American listeners listening to those podcasts, we will let you know that we are not big fans of Andrew Yang, even if he is Asian American. I think I was surprised by like the number of um, Asian people I knew, like that I was friends with that were like down to like, hang with Andrew Yang you know what I mean so like I, I just think felt like because I was you know what I, I was gonna say down to clown but I was like maybe that's the wrong part but I feel like I never like initially felt that pull towards him maybe that's because like there's like a South Asian versus East Asian like divide potentially but I also definitely think that like I was surprised to see how like how many people I knew and were friends with like just like hop on that bandwagon and I think a lot of it does have to do with like representation and like the politics of representation and like wanting to be like voting for someone who looks like you or like who like is from the same area as you and I don't know how I feel about that but I also get it I don't know Mm -hmm. yeah I feel like that desire like the Asian American community's desire for representation naturally gave Andrew Yang some of his audience and his plat and you know supporters but I also makes me question like is being Asian American enough like an ideological stance like is is him just being simply Asian American enough to garner voters? And for me, it's not. You know, it's like your platform, your policies. And you know, speaking about early about immigration, like he very much supports the idea, like you have to immigrate legally. You know, whatever that means to this country. And you know, so yeah, Jessica. Yeah, I remember after I first heard about him and started looking into his platform more, and then as the primary competition progressed and he just kept saying dumb shit on stage like I just remember feeling so embarrassed because I was like this is the most visible Asian American in politics right now like are you kidding me like I felt ashamed because I was like this person does not represent me or my politics I don't want other people especially other people of color to think that like he speaks for Asian Americans and just further undermining solidarity between people of color in this country and I just I think it goes to show like 
I feel like we talk a lot about representation among Asian American communities a lot. And it's like representation matters, but not just any representation. Like we're not just going to take whatever Asian person we get and like slap them up there and be like, yay, like that's our person. Like their politics and their ideology still matter. And so I'm not going to put up with just like any random Asian person like and say they represent me if their politics and the way they approach organizing and working with other people like is completely antithetical to what I believe in. Honestly, snap. I agree. I agree. And yeah. And I think like, again, for any Asian American listeners listening to us, like a lot of, if you happen to be a supporter of Andrew Yang, like probably you might be part of this idea, this, this supporter group called the Yang gang. Can't believe I said that out loud, but like, I've always questioned. Uh, yang, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I've always questioned this idea of like, like yeah, like like all of these young Asian Americans rallying behind him. And I think you know, I think there's like two sides of it. Like, you know, it's really nice to see all these young Asian Americans being more involved in politics because of him, because of this representation of like, oh, there's this prominent Asian American face in politics. But also like his politics, like specifically analyzing what he's trying to say and what he's promoting, it's very conservative and it's very evident in what we see in our, you know, parents' generation. And so like with these young people rallying behind him, it's either like I question like, do you guys actually know what his politics are? Or like, or are you actually aware of his politics and you actually support it? And, you know, you're mistaking them for progressiveness, you know? So again, ties back to the idea of like it's being Asian American, like an ideological stance, which uh, to me it's not. And I don't know what what do you guys think of this this Yang Yang? At least like all of like our peers, our young folks, like rallying behind him. What are your thoughts on that? I think I'm in the same boat as Nina. I was just really surprised that so many of my friends, um, particularly like East Asian Americans, like were supporting him. People that I had previously thought were like pretty progressive folks. And, like, it just kind of shook me. But I think that I, like, agree with Nina and that, like, yeah, like, representation does matter. And I can see where that might come from. However, just like you and Jessica were saying, like, I don't think that's where it ends. And that's where it, it should not end at, you know, just, like, who the person is. People need to be more critical of, like, policies and, like, the platforms that these people hold. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately, Yang was just not not there. So... Yeah, and I think one of the places where he just simply did not, like, hit it for me was when he, and this was after he dropped out of the primaries, and also it was revealed revealed that the reason, part like, the big reason why he dropped out of the primaries was because he had a conversation with Biden that promised him that he would get a role in the, his cabinet. So, oh my God. great, you know, <laughs> thought you were running for the sake of the Asian, Asian American community, but no, you're actually running for power in government. But specifically, I wanted to talk about uh, his most recent uh, article that he wrote and published in the Washington Post, where he basically said Asian Americans can prevent hate crimes against us by embracing and showing our Americanness in ways we never have before. Basically, Yang suggests that Asian Americans should rush to find a cure for the novel coronavirus so that any racism would likely fade. So what are y'all's thoughts on that? Oh my God. 
it's just so depressing. Like, how, like, he literally, like, I just don't understand how that makes any sense. Oh, you're, like, a pre- like you're, you face racism? Well, just work really hard, and then hopefully one day the people who are racist against you will like you more. Like, oh, my God. Why? How does that, how does that make any sense? It genuinely doesn't. And I think it, you know, it ties to this idea of respectability politics. And um, for those who don't know what that is, respectability politics is a form of politics that's painted as these steps people of color, in this case, Asian Americans, must take in order to gain access to a supposedly more just and fair playing field where they are respected, quote unquote, and considered equal in the eyes of the white establishment. It's like marketed as a space to promote racial uplift, women's rights, and provide a platform to a more clearly and easily fought fight against racism and sexism. However, in reality, respectability politics like just employs strategies that attempt to put Asian American folks within like an acceptable behavioral and cultural box. Um, and gaining respectability ultimately reinforces the notion that white culture and white people are the default, that they are the prime um, way to like their lifestyle, their behaviors are the more morally right um, and more, and everything else, like all of the other cultures, our cultures, are all different Asian American cultures are deemed as other, as not nearly as respectable and therefore dehumanizing us. Um, but the thing is, respectability politics have worked in some cases to promote indiv- individuals on the individual level to um, gain higher access um, in society, you know, whether it's through class, um, through race, through different um, systems of power. But like ultimately it, like it's, what it creates is like it creates like this racial, gender, sexual and class divide. And it makes it that divide easier to hide and dismissed as like this like false thing. And even harder to dismantle due to the fact that like, by trying to appeal and act more white, you're just essentially adopting the master's tools of like the racist patriarchy to fight against the master's systems of exploitation. But ultimately that's not sustainable, that's not productive. And you're just, you know, kicking down and not letting um, other marginalized people to, you know, be lifted up with you. But yeah, what, what, what are y'all's takes on respectability politics? How do you guys understand it? Um, what are you, what are y'all's relationships with that concept? I feel like I connect it to like older generations of people of color in the U.S. because I feel like our generation and other younger generations have kind of mostly abandoned that strategy because we've seen from history that it doesn't protect us. But I definitely see it having been used as like a survival strategy in the past. Um, like something that just makes me think of is I've like seen some like discourse on Twitter and just in other forums about some older black folks lecturing younger black folks to be like, okay, well, if you want to combat racism and not be racially profiled, you should like pull up your pants or like talk quote unquote normally, like speak proper uh, English um, and and things like that to, again, assimilate into normative white middle-class society and supposedly be more accepted and not subject to violence. But as we've seen, police brutality and violence against Black people does not take into account 
whether you are a professional or not, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. Um, blackness itself is still criminalized and villainized in this country. And so no matter how much respectability you perform, it doesn't protect you from that violence. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think about like another instance and more that more specifically pertains to like Asian Americans. I think about um, my parents telling me to like make sure like I help them write their emails to their bosses and they asked me to write it in proper like American English with proper grammar and this is like a more subtle way of I feel like that um connects to respectability politics but it's essentially this idea that you have to speak in a certain way you have to speak quote-unquote professionally basically you have to speak in standard American English with all its weird strange convoluted grammar rules um in order to be taken seriously in order to be considered um and you know it's very and it's by doing that it's easier for white people to think like oh you're just like us you're not different from us and therefore we'll treat you you know how we treat other white people but in reality they don't do that they still think of us as other as a foreigner as an alien all that stuff yeah you talking about your mom just like unlocked so many memories for me um, like I remember, so my mom works in like tech kind of, and so she would be on like a lot of conference calls when I was little because she would like try to come home from work early so that she would be there when I came home from school. And so she would be working from home a lot and she'd be on a lot of conference calls. And you know, like IT is a pretty heavy, like Asian American industry and she would literally make fun, like obviously not on the call, but like to me and to my family members, she would make fun of other Asian Americans' accents on the conference calls and be like, our English is so much better than theirs. And it's just like, you, you started where they are now. And yeah, it's, it's like a perfect encapsulation of the model minority myth and respectability politics and really internalizing the idea that assimilating is protective and desirable and along similar lines I remember in high school she would like constantly ask me why I didn't have any white friends <laughs> and I went to a high school that was like 50% Asian American so it's pretty like unremarkable that all my friends were East and South Asian because that was basically a majority of my school for one but she kept like she was so worried by it and she kept being like Jessica like do you hate white people like you need to make more white friends and I was like first of all oh my honestly God. kind of so like it was so sad to see how much she had bought into this idea that you need to align yourself with whiteness to succeed um, and to get far in this country. And yeah, I don't know. Is it, Teresa, you just like triggered all of those memories to resurface and reminded me how much my mom tried to like instill respectability politics in me as a kid. I feel like it's also like that idea of like, like that it feeds into that, it connects to that idea of um, that stereotype of us having to be doctors, engineers, and lawyers in order to like get those jobs in order to be seen more respectable and to get that respect within our own community and within larger white society. Um, 
and but the thing is the reality is like you know if you go follow down those paths it's not it's not guaranteed that you'll always get a job yeah sorry I was just laughing because <laughs> that's like what the majority of us are like going into but it's oh, so yeah. funny well not it's me like though that. <laughs> But no, I, I know. That's why it's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for those who are listening, like four out of five of us, like basically everyone but me are either becoming doctors or lawyers. But the thing is like, wait, are, are, is it true? Sorry. No, 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 you're true. I just kind of wanted to like ask a question. Like how much of that do you think is like us actually wanting to be doctors and lawyers? And how much of that do you think is like our parents constantly like raising us to like, I guess be doctors and lawyers like I'm gonna tell you right now I want to be a doctor but like do I really I don't know like I don't <laughs> girl if you don't think I have struggled over this question for years <laughs> I've thought about this so much especially in the past like two years like yes I want to be a doctor yes I want to like go into this field but also what were the options that I was through like what did I think were the options growing up I'm going to tell you the options for me in a very like subtle way were doctor lawyer or engineer like there really wasn't much else and like maybe business like there really wasn't much else on my plate so um and even like within healthcare once I was like oh I like healthcare doctor there was nothing else on the plate for that so I don't know <laughs> yeah I'm I want to be a lawyer I think for the most part but my parents sometimes still say like you sure you don't want to go to med school is it too late for that <laughs> I'm like yes I think it's too late. oh my gosh you know what's so funny because I'm the only person in this group who is not going down one of those paths and the thing is but don't mistake that my parents definitely were like question mark <laughs> um but I, there was actually a point it was very interesting this is very interesting there was one point where my dad was like we were like in a car like multiple car rides he would bring up this conversation all the time he's like don't you ever want to become a senator Teresa I was like a senator <laughs> what <laughs> I'm not a lawyer but like a senator and it was just really like and then sometimes I would hear like, oh, joking around like, oh yeah, she should be a lawyer. So I can go to like my friend to be like, hey, if you mess with me, I, my daughter's a lawyer and I'll sue you and all that stuff. And I was like, oh my God. But but I, I'm, go, I'm choosing to go down more like a creative path, um, like in the arts and in the humanities. And that, I mean, don't, good don't get me wrong. Thank so you. good for you, honestly. Thank <laughs> you. But don't get me wrong. It was definitely a struggle and there were definitely conversations um, but I mean, I'm lucky enough that my parents like support me. Um, but they're also, I think also like, we have to remember that a lot of the part of the reason why, you know, we're, f we're fed these like narratives and these given these choices as like, quote unquote, the only choices is because of money and economics and trying to lift our family up out of you know, our current economic situations. And that's a big part of what my mom tells me. She's like, you know, go ahead, pursue your, your dreams, your creative dreams, be an author, be whatever, but you should have a day job to pay the bills. You need to think realistically, like, you know, you can go and hustle and find, you know, hustle for your dream, but like, you want to find a way to pay the bills. And, and I think that's like another nuanced perspective of this idea of respectability politics. Yeah, I was going to say, um, like, going back to Sachi's question about, like, are we going down, for those of us who are pre-professional, 
uh, like, are we going down this path because our parents wanted us to and because that conditioning just, like, sunk in or because we really want to? And I feel like it's, like, impossible to disentangle that because, like, obviously, we're reasonable people. Like, we didn't just throw ourselves down this very hard and expensive path because we wanted to, like, embrace our parents. But at the same time, I was thinking about how, like, if your goal is to help people and you know you're interested in healthcare, like we could have also become nurses or gone into public health. Like if your if your goal is to promote social justice through law, like you could have become like you know, you could have done like activist work or advocacy work and public policy. But as Therese mentioned, those jobs aren't as financially secure as the ones that we are pursuing now. So it's also interesting to think about like how as Ahana mentioned, like what we perceive as legitimate options are shaped by our parents early on. And then within those options, we have like the freedom to choose like, okay, this is what I'm more inclined to, like this is what I feel myself fitting into. But all of those options have to be like really stable jobs that pay really well. Because again, as Teresa mentioned, like our parents immigrated here to get us those jobs. Yeah, honestly, like I think about like the different jobs I could have in healthcare all the time. Like, honestly, I respect nurses so much more than I do doctors. And I think that nurses do us like so much more work. My mom's a nurse. I like think they're amazing, but I still want to be a doctor. And like, sometimes I find it hard to like verbalize like why I think being a doctor is better. And I think that maybe the reason I have so much difficulty is because I'm afraid to admit to myself that I just want to be a little bit more respected and nurses aren't that respected. And it's really shitty to say, and it's really shitty to like think that that's what I think and like what I've digested. But like, I think that might be the answer and it's really fucking scary. And like, I think another point that I wanted to make is that a lot of the cultures that like I know I come from and I know that we've talked about before is that a lot of our cultures kind of address communities and address like living with families and like supporting our families and, and, through like financial means and through like, I guess, emotional and mental needs too, but mainly financial and American society, especially like Western society, like, I guess, uh, hinges on individualism and like making money for yourself and making sure you yourself are going to make it through this world. Um, and that's just not how like our like lives have I guess, been shaped and they don't revolve around just making sure we're okay. And part of like that financial security comes from like having these quote unquote respectable and good jobs and like taking care of the people that, you know, are going to be in our lives forever. I just want to quickly say, this is just a quick anecdote. Um, I definitely got asked at a med school interview why um, am I trying to be a physician over a nurse or a PA or anything else? Ooh, that was a hard question to answer. <laughs> like, I like, I like, I mean, I answered, but I was like, holy shit, I did not get asked that question. Also, because um, they also looked at my major and they were like, oh, if you're a woman's studies major, like, you know, why, like, why not be like something else and then go and I don't know. They just, it was really complicated. And I was like, oh my God, why do I want to be a doctor or anything else in the entire realm of healthcare? Good question. <laughs> Um, you guys all talking about like your personal relationships with like being a doctor or being in healthcare or being a lawyer. Um, like I, like now listening to you guys, I feel 
a lot better. I, I mean, I mean, I know you guys have all complicated personal relationships with that, but like, I, I honestly feel better about the state and the future of healthcare because you guys are all going into it and you guys are all very aware and self-critical and which means like you guys are going to grow into like these wonderful doctors or physicians or lawyers or whatever. And I think like, it's so interesting comparing like that and you know, with like the 2020 general election that's coming up with Biden's anti-Asian, anti-China sentiment, and especially in this time of COVID-19 targeting, like not providing the necessary health care for um, doctors and nurses in hospitals who are on the front lines of COVID-19. And obviously amongst those healthcare workers and doctors and nurses will be Asian Americans doing that work. So What's so interesting is like Biden, who is supposedly the face of the Democratic Party, supposedly the, the face of the, the progressive movement, which I know, but now that he is rising with this anti-Asian and anti-China sentiment, especially with his most recent ad against Trump, where he basically says that Trump is rolled, has rolled over for the Chinese and praised the Chinese 15 times. And that he says this travel ban Trump brags about, he actually lets in 40,000 travelers from China into America after he signed it. Not exactly airtight. So he's framed um, his electability as someone who is against Trump's pro-China um, uh, policies, politics. So uh, how does this ad play into the white racial framing of Asians and Asian Americans? you think and what are y'all's general feelings about this ad i was really annoyed when i first watched this ad obviously for many reasons but primarily just the whole idea of this travel ban against chinese travelers like i know like when trump instilled that ban like it was only for like a certain group of people i kind of forget who it was but it wasn't like any person from china ever but that was like well it's 2020 like the many countries had already had several, several cases of coronavirus and he didn't ban all travel. Like he didn't ban travelers from Italy or South Korea or like Europe in general. And to think that we, the United States in general, got this virus solely from a Chinese person is insane to me. Like it is insane that Biden chose to highlight this ban and being like, Oh my God, like, but he let in the Chinese people. He still let them in. And that's why we have COVID-19. And it's insane. This is all over Europe already. And we did not think to ban European travelers, did we? Facts. And that was just one detail. Like, there's literally the entirety of the ad is stupid. I was really disturbed by, like, the imagery that the campaign team chose to use in that ad because, like, it. I just distinctly remember the last image of that advertisement was like Trump sitting on stage next to Xi Jinping. And it was just like, like we already have a lot of problems with how Chinese people and just like Asian people in general are represented in this country. Um, like Andrew Yang already made that worse. We don't need Democrats aligning Asian people with not just white people in general, but with Trump and with Republicans. Like that doesn't help anyone except for the Republicans. And so that was really frustrating to see because I don't know, I guess like as someone who is Chinese American, I'm like constantly anxious about how 
Chinese Americans and Asian Americans as a whole are like perceived in the U.S. as a political block. And this definitely does not help solidarity and like coalition building in progressive movements. You're completely right. Because I think about um, like anti-Asian imagery, you know, like as it's traditionally understood um, with like stereotypes and representation in media and which we'll talk about in another podcast. But it's like with this pandemic, it's completely upended and changed and altered how anti-Asian imagery can, what, what it can look like. Um, and it's more sinister, it can be more sinister and more dangerous and more violent than we could have ever imagined. And I think about also like the Democratic Party and the nominees, like the other former um, Democratic uh, nominees endorsing Biden specifically Warren, Bernie, and now most recently today, as of April 29th, Stacey Abrams. Um, so what does this say about the state of the Democratic Party and its anti-Asian sentiment and its complicitness into that? Because it, like Biden and his anti-Asian sentiment is very obvious. It's not like he's hiding it. And so with these, you know, it's, it's so interesting because some of you guys mentioned, like, like for instance, um, Ahana, I think you mentioned like Warren, like, you know, specifically targeting and, and and reaching out to the Asian American community in her earlier months of um, her campaign, and now she's endorsing a nominee who is very anti-Asian, so, and that really um, like baffles me, and also doesn't surprise me at the same time. So, what do you guys think? I mean, just I just my little tidbit here is that for some reason white politicians don't understand how being promoting anti-Chinese rhetoric can alienate and piss off and like Asian American communities, like Asian Americans in the United States. And, the, and like, it's only the white politicians that, that don't see that and don't understand that. I feel like they don't perceive the Asian American like voting block as like threatening, as like a, as a group as, not threatening, but like as a group that's like, has any sort of voting power, you know? And that's why like endorsing like all of these politicians endorsing Biden without any consideration. I mean, not not even talking and touching on like his rape uh, accusations and his um, other really sketchy, really not progressive um, policies, but like specifically talking about anti-Asian sentiment, it's like, this is really worrisome. And it's like, when we, when we think of like these politicians and what they're saying, and they're like, oh yeah, 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 we're super progressive and we're, we're here for you. But like, now it makes me question like, I mean, I know politicians, politicians are just like inherently sketchy, but like, it just like, it, it really just gives me like no hope for the state of American politics. Yeah, I, I don't know. To me, it's like, I don't think any of them are even thinking about Asian Americans right now. Like, I don't think any of them had a second thought about like, oh, Biden's latest campaign ad was really racist and xenophobic towards Asians. So maybe I should give a second thought about endorsing him. Like, I'm fairly certain that thought never crossed their minds because as everybody has said, like as a voting bloc, we're still invisible. And like, to be fair, Asian Americans don't vote as a cohesive bloc in the United States. Like we're pretty divided among party lines. So like understandably the democratic establishment doesn't see us as a priority for getting them into the white house and into Congress. Um, But I think it, aside from like, the democratic establishment rallying around um, the last person standing. I think it also just 
goes to show how our how electoral politics in this country like doesn't have any room for accountability. It's just like we don't we're not willing to have conversations and politicians aren't willing to have public conversations that acknowledge the complexity of people's past records and the nuance of their political stances and platforms and their voting history and refuse to hold candidates accountable. Um, and so we just don't have those conversations at all. And we don't talk about like, how can we hold people accountable and demand change from them while also electing them if we have to, like we're not anywhere near having that conversation. So it's either like they have a perfectly clean record and we have to completely delegitimate any claim that's made against them or they're a terrible person and you shouldn't vote for them. There's no in between. And I think that really harms everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes me think of like, I don't know. I've been debating this personally for a bit since Biden became the only person standing, but like, as an Asian American person, like, and wanting, you know, like Trump out of the White House and wanting more progressive policies, like, do I exercise my civic right to, and should I vote for him? You know, even if I really just do not like him and I, like his rape accusations, just like just the whole thing, you know, and his anti-Asian sentiment. And I, and I also feel like, you know, people have been telling me like, you know, like you're a Bernie supporter, just vote for Bernie. But the thing is, he's not campaigning anymore. Like, I have to face the reality. He's not campaigning anymore. And even if he might be on the ballot for certain primaries and certain state primaries, like, and so that means I could technically still vote for him. Like, I just think of, like, 2016 and people voting for third-party nominees and which are essentially votes for Trump. And, and that's a small part of why he got in. Obviously, it's, you know, white people voting for him and white women. But I don't know. It's complicated. Um, but yeah, what do you guys think? Are you are you referring to voting for Biden in the primary or voting for Biden the, over Trump in the general election? In the general election. Because cause I, I'll be honest, I don't know if we'll have a primary. One, I think, I, I don't know what state it was, or I think it was New York, right? Where they've canceled their Democratic primary because of COVID-19. So I'm just thinking about other states. Our primary, Georgia, because we're all from Georgia, have been is, is delayed, has been delayed multiple times now. And at the moment, like, I have not been able to vote personally. I know some people have been able to, you know, mail in their absentee ballots, but um, I have not received mine yet. So I don't know. It's a real, it's a real question that I'm debating because it's like, I don't want to vote for either. I'm definitely not voting for Trump and I really don't want to vote for Biden, but it's like, I want to vote, you know? So it's like, what, what do I do? I genuinely don't know. And all of these takes that I see, I'm just like, but there's this side, there's this, there's this. So it's like, I think it goes back, goes eventually comes to the question of like, can Biden change? Will Biden be able to, you know, adopt some more progressive policies? But I don't even think that's a productive conversation. But um, what do you guys think? I mean, so I think that like from, so some of the arguments that I've heard is that from someone who does a lot of advocacy um, around survivors and from someone who is a survivor themselves, like I know that asking a survivor to vote for a racist, I mean, sorry, not a racist, I mean a racist too, but like a rapist and like <laughs> making them check that box 
is a hard thing to do and like can be a detraction from any sort of movement they've had on their own journey to healing and like, like, you know, getting rid of or maybe, you know, fixing some of the traumas they've had or, or we've had. And like, I know that asking someone to do that is obviously never an ideal thing. And I'm never going to say, you know, I don't care, like what experiences you've had in your past, you need to vote for Biden. Like, that's never something that I'm going to ask someone to do. Um, I think I've been wrestling with a lot of the same issues, because on one hand, again, don't want Trump. Trump is obviously like, the worst person ever. And these past four years have been utter hell. And I think that I can blame him for all of it. But like, I don't really know how having Biden, while there will be incremental ways in which it will be better, and those incremental ways could add up to being human lives, I can also see like, the argument that those incremental ways aren't enough. And like us giving into voting for Biden is giving into the electoral like process and just kind of assuming that that process will one day end up working for us. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of arguments. I really don't know what side I'm landing on right now. I think I'm leaning towards voting because I think that in the end, in those incremental changes are going to be human lives and putting someone more progressive on the Supreme Court is going to make a huge difference for decades. And, you know, maybe having a better vice president, I don't know who it'll be, but maybe that person can push Biden to be maybe slightly more progressive. And I know that like, choosing the lesser of the evils isn't ne is never the ideal situation and that like shouldn't be how politics ends up being. But I, I just don't see the better alternative right now. And I haven't heard any legitimate movement towards a better alternative. If it is out there, if I hear about it, I'll go to that. But right now I don't know where I could go otherwise. For sure. Yeah. I think just like Sachi said it all so perfectly and eloquently. Um, and just like, just to add, I think that there's power in resisting against like the electoral process and not voting for Biden because it shows that no, a portion of the democratic base, the democratic base and like the party that the base of the party should be caring about is not going to vote for a candidate that the party puts up if they have sexual assault allegations against them. Like no, that is something that the democratic party is, does not want and does not want and is going to vote for. And so like, I think, like, yes, that would be, like, that's an important message to say. Like, it's, it's so important. And, again, I would, like, I don't think that I can, like, necessarily tell someone to vote for Biden. Like, I don't think I can do that personally. But, like Sashi mentioned, I do think it's really, really, really important to get Trump out of office and get the GOP in general, like, out of, like, the top offices um and also supreme court so it's a really like tough situation that's a really hard question for us to navigate in general yeah i think for me one of the things that has helped me like rationalize maybe like not like rationalize per se but like kind of reframe the way i've been thinking is thinking like i'm not voting for biden but it's like i'm like actively not voting for trump or like i'm voting for the people that like maybe Biden will put in his administration or like maybe voting for his vice president. And like, I feel like that's helped me like ease some of the tension that I have of voting for someone who I just don't really believe in who he is. 
is like seeing like the bigger picture associated with with why I'm voting at all and like why I'm voting for this person because I do think like I completely understand like the power in not supporting like Biden and like saying like okay no this is like not an electoral process that we support but like I also think there's a difference between like looking at the short term versus like the long term of like I don't know just how you have to think about like the decisions that we make and like how they're going to play out for other people maybe not necessarily us. Mm -hmm. I think about like the privilege of not voting and the privilege of being like oh yeah I'm gonna I'm not gonna vote for either of them and also the privilege of saying like you should vote for Biden no matter what there there's privilege on both both sides of that argument. Um, I also have heard the argument that, um, like, I think what we've kind of all been talking about is, like, uh, harm reduction politics, and I've heard a lot about it, and I need to do a lot more reading on it, because I know there's a lot of arguments for it and against it, um, but one of the arguments I know against it is that, like, harm reduction policies, and I'm sorry, harm reduction voting is in a way paternalistic, and while it may not be something that, like, while we may be voting in the like better, I guess, to better like other groups, it's still like a very paternalistic thing to do. What do you guys think about that? I get that critique. And at the same time, I think that's already assuming that the voter is not going to be impacted by the difference between those two candidates. Like, um, I've also read a little bit about this idea of like harm reduction voting and the idea that like you are choosing the lesser of two evils, but it is to in some ways like minimize or like somehow reduce the tangible harm that is being done to people and the loss of human lives. And like a lot of times that is sort of the way I think about this electoral decision, but like I definitely see, I definitely understand the critique of paternalism but again I think that's already assuming that like you have no personal stake in this but like none of us are going to be able to access abortion in like three years if Trump gets reelected things like that like we all do have a stake in it like maybe some of us less than others and some of us are more removed from the immediate effects of one president versus another but I don't think that any I don't think anyone votes solely on behalf of other people. Um, and I mean, it kind of reminds me of um, unapologetic and the conversation we had around that in this class about the necessity of seeing your own investment and having a personal stake in your politics and your political choices. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my take. <laughs> Just some things for our audience to know. Um, when Jessica mentioned apologetic, it is a book, or unapologetic, it is a book. Um, so you guys should look, it talks about um, like black queer politics and um, activism. Um, and you guys should all check it out. As well as um, the term that was thrown around a bit was uh, paternalism. So does anybody, any of y'all wanna define that term real quick for our audience? It's like the, the way I understand it, it's just like sort of the belief that you know what's best for others. And so you are going to make those choices for them. Thank you. And also thank you um, to everyone who like explained so eloquently about their personal feelings about, you know, voting in this time and with the, um, and, and the complications and the nuances with that.
but um, to expand this um, conversation about politics to a, on, a, on a more broader scale, I wanted to talk more about global politics in the time of COVID-19, specifically with the escalation between the United States versus China. Um, and specifically on today, on April 29th, 2020, um, this little person, Jared Kushner, told Fox and Friends that Trump is focused on response to China and that he will, quote unquote, will take whatever actions are necessary, end quote, against whoever is responsible for the outbreak of COVID-19 and hold them accountable. Um, so what do you guys think of that? I, when I heard that, I, I was like, shit, you know, like, like this is one, I don't take Jared Kushner ever seriously, but also he is a dangerous figure in the, in the white house, um, who is like essentially like another mouthpiece, another puppet for Trump, um, to, you know, like make worse the discrimination and the lives of Asian Americans right now. I think it's just really funny that this person, sorry, like Trump, I guess, is the one who said this quote, I think. Is that, is that correct? Yes. I think it's just really funny that like, Trump, who has, like, so horribly, like, con like uh, I guess, addressed this entire pandemic, who has, like, constantly not given us the correct, like, path towards getting enough testing, to do enough trace testing, and all that kind of stuff, is saying that we're going to find this, like, person, the single person single person who has started this entire global pandemic and they're going to like come down with whatever like sword they will and like somehow get to the bottom of it like the person who cannot find how to like control this pandemic in their own country is going to somehow find the one person that this is like all attributed to it just blows my mind like I think Trump and the entire like I don't go, no, like his party or whatever, just needs to shut the fuck up. Like, I'm so angry. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I agree. Also, like, like, I don't know, like hearing him say that word, those words, what I've seen are people's like fears of like, oh my God, is he, is he gonna like try to start a war? Is this gonna be another excuse? Is, there, is this gonna be like another Bush? You know what I mean? And like, the thing is like, like, I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? He's unpredictable. He's absolutely unpredictable. And he's also a joke, but he's an unpredictable joke. So it's like, and that's dangerous, I think. And like, and it's just so funny. It's like, he, he's blaming all these different countries and sure, yes. Like, or no, he's specifically blaming like China. And what's so interesting is like, like, you know, and he's also broadly talking about, like, Asian countries in general, but, like, what's so interesting is, like, Asian countries are actually the ones handling the outbreak of COVID-19 much better than the U.S. For instance, I think about Vietnam's handling of COVID-19. They've been mass mobilizing their healthcare system, um, employing public employees, enabling their security forces, and using those security forces to hand out, like, free food to um, their citizens, and creating all of the, and, like, the public are creating these education campaigns using like social media platforms most famously tiktok creating like this national dance that everybody knows in order to like promote um hand washing and it's actually really it's a really cute um dance you guys should look it up 
But, um, and yeah, like testing is followed by like strict contact tracing for anyone known to be infected. And then they, whoever they find are like immediately isolated, followed by quarantining. And then they created like a real time database to like track down people and to track how many cases are popping up in their country. And they created mobile apps, like, like the government, that's what they're doing. And so far they've had no new cases since, since April 16th. So it's like, and I also think about South Korea, their handling of COVID-19 with their mass famous, infamous mass testing. And I think about like, you know, that conversation of like, if people had stayed in South Korea, they would have gotten the testing they needed or similar to the idea of flying to South Korea to get the free testing when you can't get it here in the U.S. Yeah, this just makes me think about how ill-equipped we are about politics with complexity because like this rhetoric that Jared Kushner is using and that Trump has reverted to that's sort of using China as a scapegoat for this pandemic and more broadly speaking just a lot of the western media representations of China and its handling of coronavirus lately has really played into and I think some of it is ignorance and I think some of it is intentional um and it's just really conflated communism and socialism with authoritarianism and with government corruption. And again, I think part of it is intentional so that we are witnessing the failures of capitalism and what capitalism is doing to us in a pandemic. Part of it is intentional to kind of let capitalism slide so that there isn't like a mass uprising after this is over. and to blame this virus on communism or socialism. And like, I think there are valid critiques of how the Chinese government handled COVID, especially in its early stages, because China has a really corrupt government. Like, and I think part of it is we're we're just not able to talk about it intelligently because it's the Chinese Communist Party, but effectively they're not a communist country. They're an authoritarian, oligarchic, capitalist country. And we have just as much corruption and we're veering down a path of authoritarianism in this country. But because of that conflation and because of the way those ideas are sort of collapsed, politicians in the US and in the West in general are just able to blame the outbreak on economic systems, just more just and equitable economic systems rather than talking about corruption because they know that if they start talking about corruption in other countries, they'll be on the chopping block soon. Agreed. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm praising like Vietnam's like, you know, handling of COVID-19, but that also doesn't erase the fact that they are an authoritarian state, like a one party uh, socialist state. Um, so, and also like, you know, market free capitalism, all that stuff. Um, but yeah. And I also wanted to talk about like India's handling of COVID-19. I did find an article that talked about their government and what they've been doing. And there are obviously nuanced takes on that. Um, but what I found is like the government, according to one perspective, the government is offering little in the way of a safety net. Only after the lockdown came into force and amid like a lot of outrage, did the finance minister finally announce an aid package to support their citizens. And it was like $22 billion. But even that, according to this one perspective, was, and they compare it to other governments and they consider it as pitiful. Um, and then only last week did the government finally allow healthcare workers treating patients suffering from COVID-19. Um, 
which is, um, yeah. So what do you guys think of that? Like, what have you guys heard um, from your families or, you know, from what you've read or what you have seen on social media about India's handling of COVID-19? So I think I'd like to make two points. One, I think it's really difficult for me to have a unbiased, uh, great, I guess, opinion about what India did, um, simply because the news that I get comes from either like news sources, like journalists, and then or or it comes from like my parents. And so for me, it's really difficult for me to parse through like those two different like routes of receiving information um, to see like what I really think. But two, I think that like, I, I think to all like the human rights violations that have been occurring in India because of this pandemic. So what my parents praise India for doing constantly, even before this is like, essentially police brutality I'm pretty sure I could say that um I mean like these police officers will literally beat people for like not abiding by the laws that are in place and like I have like grown up with my parents being like yeah that's the way it should be you know and that's like what they grew up with and I'm not justifying that by any means but that is like what the rhetoric that I have always heard and so I have been seeing all these videos from like the news sources that my parents choose to look at, look at to like see like Gujarati news and stuff like that to see all those newspapers. And like there are literally videos of police officers like hitting people because they came out of their houses during quarantine and they're like essentially under a lockdown. Or I saw videos of people like being forced to do push-ups and, and stuff like in the middle of the street because they came out. And it's like, it's like, I know... But police brutality and like brutality in general and violence is just not the way that this should be dealt with. And like, it really just ticks me off like that I've been receiving information from these avenues in like a positive light when I know that like none of this is good. Like you cannot beat the shit out of people for like coming out of quarantine. Like imagine the riots that would happen in America. Just imagine. I just want to add like, this is, I just think it's like, 100% agree with what everything you have just said, emphasize, emphasize. But also, I saw a video, like, of police officers making people, like, do squats and push-ups for leaving their house. And, like, literally, okay, there's, like, this thing, I don't know, it's just, like, something that, like, I grew up with, like, in, in Indian culture, for sure, but I don't know, like, how, if, how it is in other cultures, but, like, one thing that's kind of like a joke is, like, when you're in timeout, you have to hold your ears and, like, do squats. Um, okay, yeah, I think it's, like, an Asian thing, maybe. But, like, um, they were, like, making them, like, I saw pol- videos of policemen and police officers making people do that, like, on the street for leaving their house. And, like, someone was, like, rolling, like, along the road, like, literally just, like, rolling over. And that was their punishment. Um, I think that's really funny. Indians are so weird, but also yes, police brutality, when they're, like, actually hitting people. Terrible. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a connection to domestic policy and politics, because, like, in this country, too, a lot of states are relying on police and just the criminal justice system in general to, like, enforce shelter-in-place and quarantine policies, and people who violate those policies are being fined, there's like, I mean, I read that like in some states, under some circumstances, you could be arrested, which like, 
jails and prisons are the worst place to be in a pandemic. And also it just shows how deeply like carceral logic and carceral responses to public health and public safety issues is embedded in this country and apparently in a lot of countries because we're enforcing shelter in place, which is a public health measure through incarceration and policing and surveillance without providing the safety net and the resources necessary for people to comply with those policies. Um, and like one of my like fears coming out of this pandemic is like an increased presence of surveillance and policing in our lives um, and a greater reliance on our racist, sexist, like criminal justice system as an enforcer for public health rather than investing in more equitable resources that don't rely on violence. I want to just add Jessica's point of like governments enforcing policies without actually providing resources so that their citizens can like safely comply with these policies. It's really interesting because I think the perspective on how India is handling COVID-19 um, really depends on privilege. So my family over there, um, this, I mean, this is like right when lockdown was announced, but they were like, wow. And this is like when the cases in the U.S. were like shooting up. They're like, wow, like India's handling it so well. Like we have a lockdown. Like we have, they had way fewer cases. Also, they weren't doing that much testing and India like isn't going to test like low income poor people anyways. So definitely like an underrepresented number in the first place. But my family didn't want to listen to that. So they're like, yeah, India's handling it so well. And I was like, okay, but you have all the resources to have a lockdown right now. Like in India, like you can literally be in lockdown in your house and have groceries delivered to you. And some low income person has to do that job. And there's going to be no resources given to that person. Um, so I just wanted to kind of put that out there that India, like the way that Indians view like the handling of what's going on, Obviously, of course, depends on like their generation and like their education level and like how much they care about things, but also privilege in a lot of ways. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, like I'm really like when I was doing my research before this podcast, like I knew a lot of stuff about like Vietnam's handling of the COVID-19 in South Korea as well as China, but I didn't know much about how India was handling it. So thank you so much for contributing your perspectives. Um, you also mentioned y'all's families um in this time and you know speaking of that like i think about how you know transitioning to another thing like helping my family fill out the census the 2020 census recently um and for those who don't know what that is it is a questionnaire sent out by the u.s government to every living person in the u.s and the five u.s occupied territories and it affects the amount of funding your community receives how your community plans for the future and your representation in government as well as in population statistics that affects how we are used in research that relates to our experiences um, and i really think about like i think for me one of the most important aspects of filling out the census is it determines which states get more um, and which states get fewer seats in the house of represent representatives so have y'all filled out your census yet yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Cool. We're all on the same boat. Awesome. 
Yeah, yeah. I filled it out. Um, not for my family, actually, but my roommates and I all filled it out together for our apartment just because we wanted uh, it to be documented, like, in Athens, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To affect, like, local politics. But, yeah. Um, just want to say, like, this is not, I just, we can move past this, but the census only had male and female as options. I was sick. Yeah, I did I not, like, know that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember seeing only two options for gender. Did not like that. Also, I remember seeing on the census, um, like, who was counted as Asian um, on the census. And I looked it up, and the census Baru defines a person of the Asian race as having origins in any of the original peoples of the Far East, Southeast Asia, or the Indian subcontinent, including, for example, Cambodia, China, India, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, Pakistan, the Philippine Islands, Thailand, and Vietnam. Um, so, yeah, like, what the fuck is Far East? <laughs> what do you guys make of that? And what do you guys make of the, the census in general? Because I know for some people it's really complicated. Like, for some people, they just don't, simply don't know about it, and they don't see the importance. Um, and some people fear that, like, the information that they put on the census will be used against them for some reason. So, uh, what do you all make of that? I mean, I think it just goes back to that fear of surveillance, especially for undocumented immigrants. Um, And I also think it kind of speaks to this lack of outreach, um, accessible outreach, whether that's in terms of language or um, just like different forms of outreach and really getting people to understand what the benefit of the census is and what the massive policy consequences of it are. Yeah, mm -hmm, for sure. Um, I also think about like on the census, like they use the term Asian as like this sort of umbrella to encompass a bunch of different ethnicities. And so I've actually had this sort of, like I've had complicated feelings about this because like, I don't know if I'm cool with using Asian as sort of like an umbrella term to encompass so much, like literally, like, you know, like a whole continent and a subcontinent. Um, And also using Asian America, Asian American as an umbrella term as sort of like a political grassroots organizing term. So what do you all think of that? Um, What are your complicated feelings about it? Are they complicated at all? What are some of the consequences of being considered monolithically in that way? And what are the benefits of it, um, the political benefits? And why why are there certain corners in our community, in the Asian American community, insisting on differentiating between different ethnicities in, in in the sense of like, terms of political organizing yeah I really wish that like the majority of like um like things like the census or like when you're like filling out things like the common app or like different like uh ways to collect like racial information I wish they did differentiate between like that big umbrella group of Asian and like because like I do feel like as a South Asian so much like I think like people in the South Asian subcontinent subcontinent often get like invisibilized when it's like when like people think of Asian and I've like genuinely had people come up to me and be like oh like 
you're not Asian, you're Indian. Or like, you know what I mean when I say Asian? I was like, oh no, but Indian people are Asian. They're like, no, no, no you know what I mean though. And I was like, because I feel like that term doesn't necessarily capture like, like I feel like the majority of people in America, when they when they think about what Asian means, they still think about like primarily East Asian people, which um, I don't know. That's just like weird for me that I'm like always checking a box that like I don't necessarily always associate myself with or don't necessarily all, like think that other people associate me with. So it's almost like I'm checking a box just because like that's what I am. But like, where's the differentiation? I think there's also like this cognitive dissonance too, because like I think you mentioned this, but like even when I think of like the term Asian, like I don't even think of myself in that category. I don't, I'm guessing that's just because like that's the way that like the entirety of society has told me like there's the difference between East Asians who are, you know, quote unquote Asian and like South Asians who are all apparently Indian. Like that's just how the categorization works. And like it's really weird because like, I have to like actively think about what box that I'm I'm going to check on whatever like census or whatever like standardized test I'm taking to like remember that yeah like the Indian subcontinent is actually part of like Asia as a continent and I just I don't like know why Asia or sorry why India is considered a subcontinent I don't know the geography of that um but it's just like it's a real like weird thing to have to parse through in your own head when like you don't even identify with that term for sure I know I completely hear you um when I think of like the term Asian like I'm immediately thinking of like Asian Americans like when like specifically because I'm in academia right now like when I see in research like they just refer refer to communities as like blacks Asians whites you know, and it's like, I understand the, the initial purpose of it, of like, this is for research purposes and it's easy to encompass and it's easy to categorize and talk about this in a very broad sense um, when you're trying to, you know, make your larger argument. But also I feel like that does a disservice for the research and the target audience that you're doing this for. Um, and it's like, it, it, it makes me question like, when we use the term Asians, it has, I feel like it has a certain place, you know, when I think of political organizing and mass mobilization, I think it's useful because I think of specifically like, like Black Lives Matter, the Black, like Black people fighting during the civil rights and rallying under this term of like, we are Black people. But also we have to take into consideration, they've been in this country a lot longer, like, you know, involuntarily because of slavery. And they've had to, you know, rally under this term and identify with this term because in order, like, you know, people from, like, Af different, like, slaves from different African tribes, being like, and then later down over the generation, over the years, they're like, we are Black, and using this, you know, community term in order to, you know, form solidarity and to fight against racism. And for us, for Asian Americans, you know, we, what, we go back, like, three or four generations of immigrants in this country. I think about, like, I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know if it's, like, in terms of, like, political organizing if we are there yet to use to be able to rally under this umbrella term of Asian without having inter like inter intra community you know ethnic community fighting so um what do you guys think of that have any thoughts on that agree or disagree I mean it's just hard because honestly I didn't even consider myself like I'm just gonna expose myself I didn't even consider myself Asian until like college. 
like I literally all of high school I was like oh no like Asian and then like Indian and then in college I'm like wait no like Indians are also Asian like like I knew but I didn't really th- I like didn't care I was like no like it's just different like how do you even like put that much of a diverse like that much diversity into one umbrella like term um but I think it's it's just always going to be hard because like you were mentioning Teresa like the the divisiveness within the umbrella term of Asian between cultures is like a very real thing because of like white supremacy and because of the minority kids against each other. Um, that's all I have to say. I think the term Asian American originally emerged out of the need for solidarity and coalition building to unite a bunch of smaller pockets of different Asian ethnicities and nationalities in the U.S. in the late 1900s. Um, and to sort of establish that as a political identity in the U.S. So I definitely see the utility of it. And I think now still it does carry some significance. I mean, we're doing this podcast around Asian-ness and Asian-American-ness. So, you know, on some level, I think it does capture some shared experience between different nations and ethnic groups. But at the same time, I definitely agree with what everybody else has been saying about the need for disaggregation and the need to recognize that an entire continent cannot possibly be a monolithic culture. Um, like it, to me, I think the clearest example of this is how casting Asians as a monolith in the US has really led to this false perception that all Asian Americans are well off and in the professional class and like in middle and upper class. And that is obviously not the case, but because we don't disaggregate data about Asian Americans, a lot of times what we're seeing is just the effect of sheer numbers. So because Chinese and Korean and Indian Americans dominate the numbers in the U.S. and a lot of those folks were able to immigrate here because of specific visas that allow them to pursue higher education or to get a job in tech or healthcare, like that really skews the data and really skews how Asian Americans as a whole are perceived in this country. And it really damages the ability of other Asian groups to access much needed resources. Yeah, Jessica, I completely agree with you. Um, I think that we'll always, you know, as a community have a very fraught and complicated relationship with the umbrella term Asian and Asian American. Um, I think on one point, just to summarize that Asian American and Asian can be a very useful politically organizing term, but it also is very essentialist and can exclude a lot of communities that are in technical, technically as part of the Asian continent and in Asia, as well as um, skew a lot of data that can really have a lot of harm on our communities. Um, so I think that like, you know, as if we just continue having this conversation and trying to find solutions, trying to find, you know, over time as we, our community gets bigger and bigger, you know, maybe this term might become a lot more useful in different ways. Um, maybe we'll find a new term um, where we can all rally under, um, because I think ultimately with the feminist movement and as feminations, mass mobilization is how we're going to really um, dismantle the system and to get combat racism, combat sexism, combat all those isms um, that we're so vehemently against. But yeah. Okay, so now we are about just to be done. We're going to wrap up this podcast. Um, and in order to wrap it up, um, 
we're gonna, I wanted to ask you guys, if you guys have any recommendations for what we can do to be politically active in this time of COVID-19? For instance, what are some um, forms of activism that you see that can be done during this time while we are all in quarantine and self-isolation? Any recs? I mean, I think that there's a lot of value in consciousness raising. And right now, a lot of that is kind of all we can do. So like, I know that there are a lot of people who hate like the Twitter activists and, and you know, those people like posting long rants on Facebook, but sometimes that's what's needed to get one person to start thinking more critically about their own stance and their, you know, maybe their own like hot takes, whatever those are. Um, and so I think that like, right now if we can just kind of try to think about things a little bit more critically and maybe verbalize those things to our friends our family and you know our peers i think that that like has a place in all of this yeah thank you yeah i agree um this is a more like tactical recommendation um but something really cool that i've seen is from Southern Southerners on New Ground um, Song, which is an organization for LGBTQ justice and abolition based in Atlanta. And they did this really cool thing to protest, you know, continued mass incarceration and the refusal of our state officials to release incarcerated folks um, during the pandemic to protect their immediate health. And um, they were able to still stage a protest while practicing social distancing by doing a car sit-in. Um, and so basically like everybody drove up and they like didn't get out of their cars, but they opened their windows and they opened their like sunroofs and they got out and they were like still shouting and chanting and protesting, but staying six feet apart from everybody else. So I thought that was a really cool way that they sort of adapted to the situation without backing down. That's so cool. That's so cool. <clears throat> Um, I, I feel like my recommendation would be storytelling. Um, I feel like it's an it's underrated form of activism. Um, I feel like, I mean, I also, I mean, we talk about this. I vehemently oppose the idea that you have to be productive during this time of COVID-19. But I also support the idea that if you feel creative while you're, you know, experiencing cabin fever and you're stuck in your house, um, some people turn to writing, some people turn to art, some people turn to storytelling. And I think that, you know, sharing your thoughts on social media and sharing stories of, you know, loved ones and experiences and personal feelings can really help um, everybody just kind of stay hopeful and optimistic during this time. And I think hopefulness and optimism is a, like a very underrated form of resistance. Um, yeah. I mean, like, the small things I think about are like honestly just like taking the extra effort to like call your like representative and like take that extra minute to like call your board of region supervisor or whatever like it's just like I think like things that you might not think like make a difference might actually make a difference if like multiple people do them or like lots of people like band together and do them which is something I'm trying to remind myself of because like continuously I'm like oh, like me doing this one thing is like not going to help or me sharing this one Facebook post is not going to help. But in reality, like if like everyone thought like that, like that's the tragedy of the comments. And I feel like it does take like, like, like people like recognizing that like one small action, like if like multiple people like do it, like does, does make a difference. So I think it's like for me reminding myself. Of that. Yeah. Um, but I, but yeah, love your point, Nina. I also think like another form of activism that we can recommend to our listeners are like, 
you know, looking up and also forming your own mutual aid network within your own neighborhood or within your own community. And for instance, like we are all from UGA and some of us are in Athens, some of us are not, but there is an Athens mutual aid network where you can connect with other people to help either go get groceries, to pay for bills, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really valid form of um, community organizing. Um, as well as if you can, if you can afford it, you know, to um, call your representatives as well as, you know, contribute to their campaigns. For instance, I have set up a thing where I contribute to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's campaign um, uh, monthly. So that's, um, that's one way for me to kind of uh, resist during this time where I can't really do much outside my house. Um, but yeah, thank you for tuning in. Um, that is about it. Um, I've really been so inspired by this discussion and what everybody's said about domestic and global politics. And initially it seemed very daunting because it's like, it's such a broad topic, but I think we've, you know, covered as much as we can. And obviously we are not able to cover everything. And a lot of our politics are of our own opinions. Um, and I'm really excited for episode four, which is going to be about media representation, beauty and colorism in the Asian American community. So, and that will be uh, hosted by Nina. Uh, so yeah, keep a lookout for that. And thank you so much for tuning in. Feminations out. Bye. 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 Bye.